Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Jelena Golubovic, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mila Dragojevic about her new book, Amoral Communities, Collective Crimes in Time of War. Uh, this is published this year, so 2019, by Cornell University Press. So this book is a study of how violence against civilians becomes not only thinkable, but permissible during wartime The central focus on the book is on Croatia in the 1990s, but she also brings in Guatemala and Uganda as comparative case studies. So Mila, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, Elena, thank you for having me and um, also uh, thank you for for the interest in the the book. Of course. Um, So the central questions that this book seeks to answer are why are civilians targeted in war in instances where there's no clear military or strategic advantage to targeting them? And two, why do some communities experience violence and others do not over the course of the same war? So to get us started for listeners that may be unfamiliar with the former Yugoslavia or Croatia, um, can you tell us what it was about the case of Croatia that compelled you to seek answers to these questions and to write this book? Yes. Um, so um, the the case of Croatia is particularly interesting because um, of both methodological and theoretical reasons uh, for the study of uh, violence against civilians in war times. Um, let me begin with a methodological reason. Um, uh, for those who who may not be as familiar, during the uh, war um, in the nineties. Uh, there was there were some multi-ethnic regions of Croatia with uh, higher levels of violence against civilians, specifically eastern and western Slavonia, central Croatia, uh, northern Dalmatia. And then there were other multi-ethnic regions like Gorski Kotar and Podravina in northwestern part of Croatia that did not experience um, such high levels of violence against civilians. And so there was this sub-national variation um, in the levels of what I call targeted violence against civilians across different multi-ethnic communities, which uh, leads us to then ask a question why some regions experienced this and the others did not. So it it is a a good kind of uh, sub-national comparison. And then the second reason is um, theoretical, uh, because um, of the literature, especially in the field of political science, um, that uh, emphasized, there there is now growing literature that, that emphasizes other uses of violence, but uh, there is substantial literature that emphasized military strategy as, uh, as the main strategy for the use of violence in wars and in, in the ways uh, that violence against civilians can be explained. Uh, but if you look at the case of Croatia on closer examination, we see that um, even though there may be some military strategic reasons, particularly in the regions of Eastern Slavonia, which are closer to Serbia, uh, there are also... Uh, uh, patterns that make us uh, also ask a question, what, 
but why did then, uh, for example, Serb forces, um, after occupying certain parts of Eastern Slavonia, commit uh, atrocities against civilians? Um, so after the disputed territory had already been conquered, there would be no military uh, motivation or reason to to attack civilians. Um, and that happened, for example, in uh, Ovčara, in Vuk- near Vukovar, and uh, Lovas, and many other cases that I discuss uh, in Eastern Slavonia, the village of Celije, in central Croatia, Sisak, Glina, um, Bacin, Joševica, and so on, in northern Dalmatia, Široka Kula, Gospić, uh, Škabranja, and, and other regions. Uh, so these uh, so these are the the explanations that uh, I was seeking, uh, trying to understand. You know, first of all, from methodological reasons, why some regions experienced uh, greater levels of violence, and then why did violence happen after um, the territory was already occupied by by the perpetrators? So, does that uh, answer sufficiently the the question? Or, yeah. Great. So the one of the main contributions from this book is that you're developing a concept of amoral communities. Um, and you explain that these are created through the culmination of three elements. So you talk about the ethnicization of everyday life, the exclusion of moderates, and the production of borders. And we'll go into each of these elements in turn. But for the beginning, can you just describe what you mean by amoral communities? Um, so um, the term is um, uh, referring to a context um, in which um, the perpetrators um, believe that some, some that their actions uh, of violence are not going to be penalized, and that they are in this context acceptable. Um, and this only uh, this context, I should emphasize, develops only in some regions, not uh, uniformly, as as I already mentioned. And instead of um, punishing the perpetrators of criminal acts uh, uh, so that, uh, you know, civilians and and prisoners of war would be protected or feeling protected under any circumstances, the leaders in power place more emphasis in this context on resolving a political crisis, uh, winning a war, um, eliminating those defined as enemies. Um, So... um, in this context, again, violence against civilians is uh, not only tolerated, but may be actually covered up, uh, presented as random accidents, necessary sacrifice, um, given the urgent need to respond to a security crisis. Um, and uh, another um, characteristic is that this is a context where violence is used, uh, what I refer to as violence, uh, the use of violence as a political strategy. And I distinguish it from the the use of violence as a military strategy. And it's characterized by targeting um, of individuals who are excluded from the envisioned nation state or a nation body. Uh, I I call this, uh, I use this term in a book, on the basis of identity. Um, And the identity, uh, as the way I use it, I I call it political ethnicity. Um, a term that describes the attempt to connect both political and, and cultural identity. Um, so um, this concept of our moral communities in this way builds on the concept of Benedict Anderson's imagined communities. And it also explains why um, in the cases of violence against civilians, some, in those once this uh, context develops, it is not necessary to send the armies um, 
but the local population that remains in these areas is, is, uh, becomes in, involved either, either as victims or perpetrators. So that would be in short or maybe in long answer <laughs> to, uh, to explain this concept. There's a nice element of it I liked as well in the book about um, you talk about people's freedom to intervene or to to do something that would challenge the situation uh, and how in an immoral community people don't have the freedom to act according to their own to their own beliefs and how they feel like life should be conducted mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and exactly that is exactly the uh, it, it is uh, uh, the context in, or in this particular time and space when people lose that basic freedom to act uh, or to express their personal views uh, that do not correspond to the, those dominant views that seem to be uh, imposed on them um, by the political leaders or by the by the situation. So that is essential: uh, the loss of freedom, freedom of movement, and freedom of expressing views of one one's own that do not align with dominant views. Yeah, yeah and you just mentioned as well uh, in the previous answer the the term political ethnicities. So. <laughs> Moving into the, the ethnicization of everyday life, which is sort of one of the elements through which these amoral communities are created, um, I'd love if you could just uh, talk a bit more about this concept and explain how it took hold in Croatia and how people became divided into political ethnicities in the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, as I mentioned, um, this term is, um, it's not uh, a, a a new term. It's a term that that builds on many um, other uh, studies, um, but it 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 really is important in this context because it shows how a cultural ident- uh, identity, in this case ethnicity, uh, becomes linked or fused with uh, political identity, and uh, there is a uh, th- that contributes then to the polarization and division along. Um, political ethnicities or, or, polit- or these new identities that emerged. Um, and um, how does it begin? It's, it, and, and I emphasize this in a book, it actually starts usually from the top um, in the discourse of political leaders, in the media, um, in the new policies and decrees of the government. So as we are looking for later, um, when, we, when, when I discuss in the book, ways to prevent um, which isn't the focus of the book, but hopefully there will be some science in the book about uh, how we can learn something from this and, and prevent. Um, those are the first things that uh, we may want to pay attention to um, as, we, as we are concerned about preventing such uh, if crimes from happening. Um, and then over the course of this process of um, discourse uh, from the top or in the media, uh, statehood becomes redefined in terms of political inclusion of certain political ethnicities and the exclusion of others, and um, and it doesn't necessarily take hold this 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 process of what I call ethnicization or creation of political ethnicities uh, uh, uniformly on a national level, but in some regions it might take hold, and then that uh, that happens. Uh, following uh, certain incidents of violence that, that uh, for example, uh, in, one, in my interviews, one respondent uh, mentioned that 
inter-ethnic divisions were evident only after some of the uh, respondents' co-workers started missing from work um, right before uh, what was in Croatia, log revolution, and after violent incidents in uh, in the Plitvica region in March, um, on March 31st, 91. So that specific point of violence uh, was essential. And what happened is, uh, this respondent described how um, people assumed that those who were missing from work uh, joined insurgency and uh, and then automatically they were seen as taking the other side. And this is how these first divisions and distrust started to, to develop and why these in- initial incidents of violence were critical uh, for that to happen in some parts of Croatia and central Croatia. So after... These kind of incidents, separations into distinct groups coincided with uh, uh, with the start of violence, and the people who once were friends then became either Serbs or Croats, um, following this escalation of violence. So, so that is one one first step. But also um, the divisions, the physical divisions, um, the, the the setup of uh, barricades and uh, roadblocks, uh, then that. These divisions divide people into uh, us and them, and uh, not only physically but socially, then distrust can can grow. Um, and and as I described, um, these are some of the processes that may lead to to further polarization in these communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where just being a certain ethnicity is tied to having political views, like this person is a Serb or a Croat, therefore they must be on the other side. Exactly, exactly. Um, So concerning the other two, so the ethnicization of everyday life, uh, the way you put it is this is sort of the, this is like a necessary condition or this is sort of the backdrop. But then the two main mechanisms, I guess, by which immoral communities are formed are the exclusion of moderates and the production of borders, which you just mentioned through establishments of checkpoints and so on. Um, And what I really enjoyed in your book was that as you're describing these two mechanisms, you really pay attention to the emotions that accompany them. Um, And so, for example, how fear comes into play and is associated with threats and rumors and suspicion and so on. Um, And this will probably be a long answer, and I should have divided it maybe into two questions, one for each mechanism, but um, could you just speak in turn about the exclusion of moderates and the production of borders and how these contribute to the formation of immoral communities and perhaps also maybe centering the role of emotion in these processes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, those are the, the most essential uh, um, processes and, of course, a very important question uh, to pose. Um, so in some, in some areas um, or regions... Uh, moderates or those individuals who challenged uh, uh, these ethnicization processes were excluded. And they were excluded through the use of um, either small targeted small-scale violence, so they would be uh, uh, either threatened or maybe even injured or in some cases even, even killed. Um, and that would serve as kind of a warning to others uh, who might want to challenge the, the newly posed order um, and political views. Um, there, w- there would be also some more subtler forms um, of social ostracism that would uh, lead people to kind of keep quiet and not, not express fully their, um, 
their views, their personal views. Uh, but let me let me begin maybe uh, with an example from the region uh, that did not experience extensive violence against civilians, uh, or more specifically Gorski Kotar in northwestern Croatia, where moderates were actually not excluded um, through these threats or harassment or use of fear uh, or even outright violence. Their uh, individuals, activists, and uh, local uh, uh, community members, like in case of Franjo Starčević, uh, traveled across uh, barricades in the summer of 91 uh, to neighboring villages and promoted the idea of non-violence, um, negotiating between the leaders of conflicting sides, keeping these lines of communication open so there wouldn't be um, growing distrust among local population. Um, in contrast, in other regions where moderates were not excluded, where moderates were excluded, such as in eastern Slavonia, uh, uh, Osijek police chief Josip Reichel Kir attempted to do the same. He tried. He tried to uh, travel and uh, talk to different sides and try to remove the barricades and facilitate negotiations. Uh, but he was killed already in the summer of '91. So even before the war started, in some multi-ethnic communities, um, there were these instances of both attempts to, to negotiate and build bridges, but also instances of threats and, and violence and, uh, and uh, growing fear and distrust. Um, so in those areas where, where again, uh, we see more escalation, we see that... Uh, the the power of those who wanted to establish uh, communication was weakened uh, by the by the violence, and those who uh, uh, wanted to to impose a more uh, uh, a new divi- new division between the population started to gain more prominence through the use of fear and threat and so on. Um, And I would say that um, additionally, the creation of these new borders, um, of these new checkpoints and barricades uh, forced individuals to choose uh, one or only two uh, political options that coincided with their ethnicity. And the population in those communities uh, then was both divided and then policed more easily because of the, uh, the kind of cultural markers that were attached to them. After after the divisions uh, occurred, and because the 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 line of communication between uh, local population was broken, then it became uh, more easily uh, uh, you know to spread rumors and to uh, uh, and the, and to 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 have that uh, distrust and fear grow stronger. So. Uh, then that led to more incentive to, to create new barricades and new barriers between the population. So in some villages, there were what uh, some of my respondents referred to as double barricades from inside and outside. So people really could not move freely. Um, and the general atmosphere of distrust and unrest increased this sense of uh, fear and insecurity in, in these particular regions. Um, and then you saw that is accompanied with uh, with more violence, and um, 
I would like to also bring in here examples of Uganda and Guatemala, which had striking similarities uh, to Croatia in this regard, because in Uganda, disappearances early on contributed to general sense of fear and distrust. And uh, one of my respondents said, your very brother could betray you. We were told not to trust even your very shadow. And so that, that gives you the example of uh, how, how that is a, a universal um, feeling that, that once people are separated like this and then uh, there, there are these incidents and then rumors, how that, that creates this atmosphere of distrust. Um, also in Guatemala, um, well-known civil patrols were uh, put in place and they were uh, their main role was what I referred to later in a book as in-group policing or basically keeping their own groups in check, making sure that there are no individuals who will step out of the expected line uh, and act on their own in, 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 in line with their own personal views. So people were so afraid uh, to refuse to follow uh, what they were told that they, um, they, can, they continued to take part into this, in these uh, in-group policing processes in, this, in these particular communities. Um, only in rare cases, um, in case of Guatemala, I had in some, uh, in some uh, cases of interviews, examples of people who were able to stay outside um, of the, in a sort of neutral way outside of the conflict. And it was because um, in this case, a uh, person was not really a member of the community, but was able to freely travel uh, in the region and um, had a freedom of exit uh, from this particularly, uh, from the particular region that was blocked off by, by roadblocks from the rest of the country. So, um, so once we have uh, these processes and that, that happen sometimes, actually most of the time simultaneously, the exclusion of moderates and the production of border take place, then these new identities or political ethnicities become more salient, more visible, and uh, they become a shortcut of um, politically categorizing individuals into, um, you know, the friends and, and enemies. And, uh, and it's much more uh, convenient for those who want to police or control population to have them divided in this way. So I think that, that's uh, my long answer <laughs> to this question. <laughs> yeah. The examples of um, Guatemala and Uganda were really striking because it just really shows you how these patterns are, are consistent in other cases and how these factors in different contexts really lead to the same result, which is unnecessary violence against civilians. And there was something that you can tell me if I, if I understood this right, but um, I mean, when you have it laid out here as sort of like a, a, a pattern that creates immoral communities, what was a bit counterintuitive was that from the interviews, it seems like some people who are inside the communities, so they're inside these uh, spaces where they can't move freely and there's borders and checkpoints, those borders and checkpoints actually give them a feeling of security precisely because the other side is constructed as a threat to them. So even though they're actually more at risk because of these borders and checkpoints, it gives them a feeling of safety. Did I, did I catch that right yes, in the book? Yes, and that is the paradox of this uh, situation, is that uh, 
actually uh, the the initial uh, barriers lead to more and more uh, desire for barriers that would divide because of the security concern, because of growing distrust. You want more, more protection and more uh, barricades. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a very uh, dangerous situation because that's what leads to more and more escalation and more and more uh, potential for for this kind of atrocities to take place because of the because the, the outcome is not what people desire when they want uh, to be protected. The outcome is that they feel more exposed and vulnerable because they're blocked off, mm-hmm. uh, actually, and they have no freedom of movement. You know? So it's, uh, it's a very... Uh, that, is, that was what was interesting uh, in, in this study, to, to encounter this, and why I thought it was important to highlight it. You had just mentioned as well in the last question, um, uh, places where violence didn't take place and crimes didn't occur. And I think that's a really great and interesting part of your book is that you don't just focus on, you know, the sensational, the violent, the, those sorts of episodes. You also, because you want to understand how this can be prevented. So you also look at places where violence didn't take place. So I wanted to ask you, what were the most important distinguishing factors between those cases and what sort of takeaways are there for how the descent into amoral communities can be prevented? Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that um, actually uh, there were many uh, more uh, cases of certain solidarity or help that people provided to one another. Um, and if you look at, first of all, in, in the communities that didn't experience such uh, high levels of violence, that was the case. But also in even in, in the areas with, that, had, that had more violence, there, some of my respondents mentioned, uh, almost everyone mentioned a story of some type of solidarity. And, uh, and that is actually what gives us hope that, yes, this can be prevented and there are certain uh, things that can be done. Um, so what was puzzling... Uh, uh, to me was that given the, the the solidarity and even connections that were extensive in the case of Croatia uh, across ethnic lines, um, how is it possible that violence was not prevented everywhere, actually? <laughs> I would have expected that to happen uh, based on, on, the, on, on the kind of connections that already existed prior to war. Um, it was only su- successfully prevented in some, some communities and um, and I don't believe it is because there was there was some kind of a better connection or better people. It is simply because in those regions, uh, um, the the individuals who wanted to to prevent uh, were not disempowered. In in the regions that violence where violence uh, was more extensive, uh, those individuals who wanted to prevent were disempowered. They didn't have the power to to resist. Um, they might have attempted, but they didn't ultimately have power to stop it. Uh, there were maybe cases of individuals helping individuals, but on a on a bigger scale, the violence wasn't wasn't stopped. And uh, as I already mentioned, um, in Gorski Quarter, barricades were removed early on, so that's one one condition that was important. Um, and because of that, uh, the, the communication was open. So, for example, there was a case of, and this is uh, a small example that just illustrates how in that particular region, 
there was concern for each other and across villages. So in, in Serb village, there was a wed- wedding uh, and they traditionally use, uh, uh, they, they, there are gunshots at weddings in Serbian villages traditionally. And they warned uh, the no- neighboring Croat villages that this is why there would be gunshots. They would hear gunshots because of the wedding and nobody's planning any attack. And the local police was informed and they informed the local population. So everybody knew uh, what was happening. And so that just shows you, and this was during the war, it just shows you that uh, uh, there are different um, ways that different regions were able to, to, to prevent, uh, you know, the divisions among the population. So uh, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's basically... My response is that the, this uh, production of borders or barricades were, were essential um, in the areas where where violence could or could not escalate, and also the um, the individuals who tried to moderate or um, negotiate were um, not disempowered in in some parts. So those are the main the two main. Conditions. To extend a bit, you just talked about um, solidarity and people helping one another as well. And uh, so throughout the book, the focus is mostly on understanding sort of the structural conditions that are enabling collective crimes to take place, as opposed to a different approach that would judge individuals for their actions. So judge individuals for being bystanders or for turning away when violence is inflicted on others. Um, But you do document these moments of solidarity, as you mentioned, where there's individual people who are risking everything to help their neighbors in a context that's very not conducive to um, inter-ethnic cooperation or care. So what I'm curious about is, can you talk more about how these kinds of stories layer into the concept of amoral communities? Mm -hmm. to, To what extent is it a totalizing concept, like a community is amoral or it's it or it isn't were these discrete forms of solidarity or resistance often taking place below the surface or are these stories so touching precisely because they are so rare mm-hmm. well i i uh, as i mentioned already um, just uh, uh, in the previous response they are, i don't believe that they are so rare um, basically based on my interviews um, they were very commonly mentioned uh, by respondents in across uh, different uh, regions um, people were interconnected and um, and so um, that would not uh, be the uh, the reason that they are you know uh, that I, I would say that uh, uh, in order to understand uh, how the these acts of solidarity uh, fit in our moral communities we would we would really have to look at um, I think it's essential to look at these structural conditions because uh, just by themselves, the acts of solidarity cannot be power. They, they cannot have all the power um, to prevent the escalation or the descent into this moral community. Um, so it's really important to to look at what um, what help these individuals may get from either. Uh, uh, institutions locally or nationally um, to act um, and what kind of uh, support they can get 
either by their own community or, you know, somehow uh, they need a, a little more force in order to be able, or at least not to be stopped, you know, by, by fear or threats and so on. So it's really important to, to consider, um, and this is actually what provides a little bit of, of hope and in a way that violence can be prevented, is that uh, we are aware that in almost all regions there are, there are those who would want um, there, there are these acts of solidarity of human connection that really are important and they just need to be brought to the foreground by uh, other factors and why call these structural conditions and I talk about uh, ability to freely express your views even if they don't align uh, with one of the dominant sides and then to, to preserve this freedom of movement of people so they don't feel uh, trapped and and afraid uh, to act, you know, on, on the basis of their views, of their own personal views. So um, that would be um, what I would say. Um, so as we were talking about a little bit uh, before we hit record, um, I was saying to you how I love that this is a, political science book that is based on ethnographic fieldwork and interviews, uh, which isn't really the norm in political science. And so you draw on other disciplines, you draw on anthropology a lot in your book. Um, can you talk a bit methodologically about why this approach was so important for the book and what you gained or maybe lost by um, talking to people who have lived through the war and treating them as experts on their own lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it's a, a really um, something that uh, first, first of all, I when I when I started uh, researching for this book and I talked to people, I encountered disconnects between what political leaders said and what uh, perspectives uh, people I talked to had uh, about what happened, and that led me to to question, you know, our maybe more standard methods in political science um, and also to think that um, this method of of interviews would provide new understanding um, of of what is is, of the conditions and also the situation on the ground, social, political context. Um, What is, let me begin with what is lost maybe with this approach um, it cannot be used to reconstruct historical accounts uh, or to construct ge- uh, co- general causal arguments. Um, it is also uh, an approach that is based on in-depth interviews. So there is a relatively small number of uh, uh, respondents and that makes uh, generalization more uh, challenging, of course. Uh, but what is gained uh, was much more, uh, for me, uh, valuable for this. That's why I, I chose this method as the primary method. Uh, first of all, uh, people with first-hand experiences um, are really experts, true experts. And so that is why I, in this book, treat them as teachers. Um, they experience wars in their own lives. And so their accounts add certain depth and emotion. Um, they actually uh, add more objectivity than than we often think. When we think of interviews, we think, oh, this is just an opinion of one person or another, but they add this uh, authenticity uh, of what happened in their lives. And so um, they also uh, 
add diversity of perspectives. I was very intentional about trying to uh, gather as diverse of a sample of respondents as, as I possibly could, and um, and then draw some and try to identify some patterns. I should also mention that this is a very difficult book, uh, difficult for both uh, for participants, first of all, uh, for respondents, but also for uh, my research assistants, for myself. And it is difficult for readers as well. Um, but um, it was uh, because of all the subtlety and all the uh, introspection of the work that, hope, that that somehow I feel that it merited uh, this difficult um, uh, project because there is some hope that maybe this can be prevented if we learn from, from those who have first-hand experience. So this is why I thought this, this method is particularly uh, valuable for this kind of research. I think your approach of treating people as experts is really um, is is really great in the book. And you talk about how in certain cases, even though while the events were taking place, you know, 25 years ago, maybe they were gripped with fear or they at the moment couldn't analyze their decisions as they were making them, but they've also had decades to reflect on their own lives and to gain a critical insight and a critical distance even from certain events in their lives. And I, I just love that instead of the language of talking about, oh, people's memories of the war and how do they remember the war, you talk about their knowledge of it and and position yourself as, as a student learning mm-hmm. about their lives. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, that was um, that was really, uh, for, for me, very important. And also for I think uh, also for the respondents um, and for people who participated, um, it was important to be able to say, uh, just to to say what they experienced and to actually be taken as, uh, uh, for these statements to be taken as as their own statements rather than to be uh, changed or, uh, you know, put into some kind of, um, a narrative that wouldn't necessarily reflect what what they wanted to express. In their in their own words, in, in their own way. So that's why I thought uh, treating them as experts is actually uh, very important to give them the voices that. And and it's really interesting because um, as we were talking about, you know, this process of exclusion of moderates, um, you realize that many of the people uh, that are talking in this book could be considered moderates, actually. <laughs> and finally, you know, we can actually hear them and hear what they have to say. Uh, so it's really important for that particular reason too, you know, in terms of wanting to prevent something in the future. Not only in the region that I examine, or two, three regions that I examine, but um, maybe in scholars of other uh, areas could recognize some things in this work and could maybe uh, also apply some of this and see if it applies to, to some other contexts as well. Yeah, it's written in such a way that I feel like it's really applicable across different field sites and different contexts. And the the way you lay it out and the sort of patterns you identify, I think you can you can see them happening in lots of different cases. So I really highly recommend this book to to anyone interested in in violence against civilians in wartime. Um, but as the final question, I would mm-hmm. like to ask you, what are you working on next? So um, so the next uh, uh, work, um, of course, I have to say that uh, 
I, I will take a little break <laughs> because it has been okay. quite exhausting <laughs> work. Uh, but I already started reading and thinking and doing some field research on uh, nonviolent, uh, nonviolence as a form of resistance, which there is a lot of research on. But I was interested particularly in, uh, um, in the context of Croatia in examining uh, the case of Croatian Spring. Uh, which was a movement from uh, a movement or effort to reform the political and economic system in Croatia uh, and former Yugoslavia between 1970 and 72. And I wanted to connect this theoretically with uh, the movement, that, with the literature on, connect, on contentious politics and uh, nonviolent resistance, um, in a way to, to try to understand uh, what potential uh, these types of um, collective actions can have. And it is a form of an extension of this work um, because it, it will focus more on, uh, on the non-violence or explaining more non-violence rather than explaining the absence of violence, right? So, in a more intentional Wonderful. way. Something to, yeah. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Great. And well, again, thank it's you just so beginning. Much for- Yes, first a a well-due period of rest. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate uh, getting to talk to you about this book, and I hope everyone will will read it. Well, thank you, Elena, for having me on the show and for excellent questions. And um, and, um, thanks again for, for the interest in this work. So that was Mila Dragojevic talking to us about her new book, which came out this year, 2019, uh, from Cornell University Press. It's called Amoral Communities, Collective Crimes in Time of War. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.